for today. And um, I hope that that experience for you was helpful. Um, I really believe that the Bible actually speaks on its own. You don't need me to explain the Bible. You need to read the Bible, and God's Spirit can speak through that. And we've seen that in the high school recently. We, um, the scripture teacher and I, Garen and I, just realized, man, we just need to read the Gospels together with these kids. And so we've just been reading, and it's amazing how powerful that is. And um, so rather than explaining that passage, I hope that you um, felt that God was speaking through that. I hope that in your groups that you actually saw God speaking to other people in, in, in different ways to yourself and actually bringing that together. And so rather than explaining that, I'm going to just share what I think God has been putting on my heart over the last week slash three weeks. And um, yeah, share from there. I've been rereading the Chronicles of Narnia recently, uh, just before I go to bed. And it's been awesome. It's cool to just read something really chilled and not serious. But if you haven't read the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, I would totally, highly recommend it. It is awesome. But uh, no matter how old you are, the funny thing about stories is that sometimes, especially the deceptively simple stories, the ones that are, are just like fairy tales or really basic, the simplicity of the story can catch us off guard and suck us in. And before you know it, you're learning some moral lesson or some big picture idea, some deep truth without even realizing it because the story just gets inside of us somehow. And you find this with Bible stories too. We find ourselves seeing things from the perspective of the character or the author and things that we wouldn't necessarily think about, but we've just seen it through the lens of the story. And the thing I've been really struck by in Narnia is that in all the real adventures, in all the adventures that really matter to the main characters, to Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy, they're always by accident. They, they found themselves in a new story. They stumbled into it. They were sucked into another world before they had any chance to object, strategize, or plan for the occasion. They were just running along, playing hide-and-seek, and all of a sudden they find themselves stumbling quite by accident into the realm of Narnia. Now, C.S. Lewis is quick to point out that, they, that it wasn't an accident, that in fact they were summoned, that, that the Jesus figure, Aslan, was actually whisking them away and orchestrating the situation. But the critical point was that to them, it felt like an accident. They just stumbled into it. They didn't choose it. And the reason I share that is I actually feel that I'm beginning to feel that the same is true of us. I feel like we've stumbled into a crisis. Um, Many of you know that our leadership has been, been wrestling with, with consultants and, and trying to hear what's the way forward and trying to get vision and new ideas. And even just as I've talked to many of you, there's uh, this, this dissatisfaction, a, a, a lack of belonging, maybe sometimes feelings of loneliness, a lack of engagement, uh, a lack of change. Some of you are frustrated at the lack of change. Others are frustrated at the, the things to be changing that... Maybe we, we shouldn't change. And, and Pastor David shared last week about the lack of evangelism. There's, there's this crisis I feel like we've stepped into. Many of us feel this. this. Something isn't quite right. And yet, and I'll unpack all these things in a second, but, and yet I actually feel like this is a stumbling into a new story. 
I feel like we've stepped into a realm where all of the old positions don't work anymore. All of the old tools, all of the old patterns and ways of doing things have to be pushed aside and we're forced to respond on our feet, as it were. We were called to listen afresh to God, to try and find out one step at a time in his way what he's calling us to do. And even if it means being afraid, being vulnerable, taking unpredictable risk, because when you think about that, that's, that's faith. And I want to title the message today, The Issue Behind the Issue. The Issue Behind the Issue. Um, Pastor David shared last week about uh, evangelism and how that we're not um, being as outreach focused or maybe just in our life aren't connecting with people and just sharing our faith as much as we could do. And I, and I agree. The reason I agree is because I know it's true of me. And yeah, that was, that was challenging. But when we look at our lack of evangelism, I actually don't think that's the issue. Why? Because behind that... Actually, I just realised. I've heard that the wrong way around. Behind that is an even bigger issue. And, and the reason I actually don't think it's an issue is because I, if I asked any one of you, do you want to share your faith with people? I'm sure you'd say yes. I want to share my faith with people. I want to tell people about Jesus. I want that. But it's, I'm not doing it. Why? And I suspect if I asked you, we'd feel the same way. We, we want to share our hope and the things that make a difference to us, but we don't do it. Why? Tim Keller, uh, who is a pastor in New York City, uh, gave a sermon recently on evangelism, and he said the lack of evangelism is only because of one of two reasons. It's either that we aren't in close relationship to people who are unchurched, or we don't have a white-hot faith. And he said, so often we think that the issue is that we don't have training, but he said, sometimes the people with the least training are the most evangelistic because they're just new Christians and they just want to tell people because they're so excited about it. And so the issue isn't a lack of training. It's only one of two things. Either we're not in close proximity and friendship with people outside of, of church, or we're not in white-hot faith ourselves. And I was like, man, that is so challenging for me because I think that's true for me. Uh, I don't know about you, but my faith isn't as, as white-hot as it could be. And yet, even then, if I asked you, do you want white-hot faith? I'm sure you'd say yes. I'm sure if I said, do you want white effect? And you say, yes, I do want to be close to God. I do want to know God. I do want to have experiences of God. So this isn't the issue either. We, we, we're not as on fire as we could be, and yet that's not the issue because we do want it. So why don't we have it? And I think that behind our lack of white-hot faith is a lack of regular spiritual practices. What is it that is forming us? Because white hot faith grows from a place. I want you to, to hear this. White hot faith grows from a place where every day we have spiritual practices that form us into the way of Jesus. What is it that's shaping us? What is it that's forming us? Man, 
I've been so challenged recently about prayer because I've gone, oh my goodness, I haven't been praying and yet I'm in ministry and I'm, I'm, I'm doing these things and working so hard and yet so little of my time is prayer and yet that's the one thing that's going to make a difference. And so I've been so challenged personally. But it's the same when we think of spiritual practices. The first ones that come to mind often are Bible reading and prayer. And uh, Jonathan Biddle gave a talk at GLOW a couple of weeks ago with the youth saying... Um, I wasn't there, but I heard it was really good. Saying like, man, we need to be reading a Bible. How many of us are actually reading um, our Bible like every day? And it was really confronting from what I heard that, that we're not doing that. And I haven't been doing that as much as I could do. And so there's this, this realisation. We don't start here. What's the issue behind the issue? It's this, are we being formed into the way of Jesus? When you look at the book of Acts... The, 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 the early Christians weren't called Christians. It was only in chapters 11 or 12 that they were called Christians. They were initially known as followers of the way. To be a Christian was to practice the way. It was to practice a way of Jesus that was countercultural, that was different. And it starts with doing things that form us into the likeness of Jesus. Now, think about this. If you want to be different to the world, it doesn't actually take very much. It just takes... Man, think about this. One of the most um, uh, spiritually forming things in our life is, our, is the iPhone. Is that, that so many people, the first thing they do when they, they wake up in the morning is look at their phone, look at the notifications and messages that come in. And so we're instantly in this position of, 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 of input. And, and we don't have to step in outside of our home anymore to be influenced by the world. We just need to open up our phone and suddenly we're, we're, we're being confronted with things and formed by things. And so just to be countercultural, all it takes is just before you get up, when you get up in the morning, before you look at your phone, just stop and sit in silence because we've got so much noise going on around us. We've got, we've got just noise and music and podcasts and radio and, and chaos and, and busyness and, and just to sit in silence and go, God, what are you saying to me? And to open his word and just to read a psalm or, or read, read a part of the Bible and just, just hear God and maybe get a piece of paper and just say, what are you saying to me, God? And just write down that first voice that comes to your head. If we, if we, if we have basic spiritual practices, that is the soil, the birthplace, the, the ground in which white hot faith grows. And now, before you think... Uh, I'm beating up on you, I'm not, because I'm in the same boat as you. And so if we're in a sinking boat, we're sinking together. So I'm not up here saying, like, I don't want to be judgmental at all, but I, I'm, I have this deep sense of dissatisfaction because I'm like, when I read the book of Acts and these people had courage and these people had tenacity and boldness, these people stepped into situations in which their lives were at risk. And I see that and I go, I'm not there. And so, I, I don't know about you, but I, I suspect this is confronting. Am I living wholeheartedly with this picture of, ah, this white-hot faith? And if we want white-hot faith, the issue behind the issue, how much are we forming ourselves into the way of Jesus? When you look at Acts 2, they practiced this community of doing meals together and life together. And you see that in one of the other passages. I can't remember which one, but I think it was Acts 5. They just were sharing meals in each other's homes all the time. That's a spiritual discipline. Community is a spiritual discipline. How much are we practicing that? But even then, 
If I asked you about any one of those things and said, oh, would you like to pray more? I'm sure you'd say yes. If I asked you, would you love to be in more community? You'd say yes. So this isn't the issue either, right? There's an issue behind the issue, which I think is what we're believing. And now we've moved from the realm of our practices into the realm of belief. When you read the Gospel of John, John talks quite a lot about spiritual warfare. And when we hear the word, if you're being around Christian circles for any length of time, you've probably heard spiritual warfare and fighting against evil and this kind of thing. We often think of evil being involved in circumstances or events or situations. But when Jesus speaks about evil, his primary, um, uh, the primary means of evil that he describes is lies. If we believe, if, 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 if Satan can get us to believe lies about God, about others, about ourselves and about the world, we've already lost. When, we, when he lies, he speaks his native language. He's the father of lies. And so I think we need to unpack what are we believing deep down inside? When was the last time you actually sat down and went, what, is, what are the voices saying inside my head? And not in some weird way, but just in terms of, like, what, are the, what is my self-talk? Because that's revealing a belief somewhere, a life commandment in a sense. What are the, the things that we're living out of? And I think behind this is something even bigger, which is scarcity culture. Scarcity culture. Let me read you a quote. Lynn Twist, a global activist and fundraiser, wrote in her book, The Soul of Money. For me and for many of us, our first waking thought of the day is I didn't get enough sleep. The next one is I don't have enough time. Oh, my goodness. Next, whether that's true or not, when we, well, that thought of not enough occurs to us automatically before we even think to question it or examine it. We spend most of the hours of our day worrying, explaining, hearing, complaining, or thinking about how we don't have enough of. Mm. When we sit up in bed, before our feet touch the floor, we're already inadequate already losing, already behind, already lacking something. By the time we go to bed at night, our minds are racing with a litany of what we didn't get, didn't get done that day. We go to sleep burdened by those thoughts and wake up to that reverie of lack. This internal condition of scarcity, this mindset of scarcity lives at the heart of our jealousies, our greed, our prejudice, our arguments with life. We get scarcity because we live it. All of us, I, I suspect if I was to ask you, never mm, enough, it doesn't take very long for our minds to populate that with the tape that we play in our heads. Never good enough, never perfect enough, never thin enough, never powerful enough, never successful enough, never smart enough, never certain enough, never safe enough, never extraordinary enough. We get scarcity because we live it. Do you find, I'm, I'm sure you've found these, these voices in a sense, this, this, this um, belief system. We live so often with not enough, that we are not enough. And, and it's crazy because I think that's not even the real issue either. The reason that that is an issue is because there's something behind it. And now I think we've got all the way down, which is shame. Shame is the fear of disconnection. We are psychologically, emotionally, cognitively, spiritually hardwired for love. 
Hey, like when you think about it, from a Christian point of view, we were made for a love relationship with God. You were made for a relationship with God, to love God and love others. And we are, we are, shame is the fear of disconnection. The fear that something we have done or failed to do, an idea that we have not lived up to, a goal we haven't accomplished, makes us unworthy of love or connection. Are you hearing me? Shame is saying I'm not worthy of love or good enough for love, belonging, connection. Shame is the intensely painful feeling of experiencing or believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Brene Brown uh, is a social researcher and she's unpacked shame and done thousands of interviews and, and hundreds of people's stories. And she, 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 as her research, she finds three things about shame. One, we all have it. Shame is universal. We all experience shame. The only people who don't experience shame lack the capacity of, for empathy, em- empathy and are psychopaths. Two, we're all afraid to talk about shame. And three, the less we talk about shame, the more control it has in our lives. Many of us live with this deep sense of I'm not enough. Now, maybe you've heard um, and wondering, like, what about sin? And as Christians, we often talk about sin. It's worth noting here that shame is different to guilt. Guilt is saying, I've done bad. Shame is saying, I am bad. Guilt almost always results in in actually a positive growth. Guilt brings us to a point of going, oh my goodness, I need to change. I've done something, I need to adjust here. And Christians call that repentance. But shame says, I am bad. And it, it almost always locks us and stops us from engaging. Now, I haven't used pretty much any Bible up to this point. And the reason for that is I think actually sometimes we can use our faith and our religion and our religious words to hide from actually dealing with the biggest issues here. I was reading through some of my study notes the other day and I heard this story that wrecked me. Uh, A psychologist who used to be a pastor and he became a psychologist, he saw this lady who was constantly using religious language, saying, uh, when, when, when she was seated in my office, the following dialogue took place. What caused you to come and see me? Oh, Jesus told me to come and see you. Oh, I'm, I'm glad Jesus told you to come and see me. Why do you think Jesus told you to come? She didn't answer my question, but just said, I love Jesus, you know. And he responded, it's good to love Jesus. In what ways do you love Jesus? Well, when I get up in the morning, I ask Jesus what I should put on, and Jesus always tells me. And when I go down to get breakfast... For my family, you know, I have a husband and an 11-year-old son who still wets his bed. And when he does that, I always make him kneel by his bed and confess his sins to Jesus. I always ask Jesus what I should have for breakfast. And he always told me, you know, I really love my Jesus. By this point, you may suspect that there is something not quite right about this woman's theology and belief system. Her overuse of the word Jesus, her inability to make decisions on her own, should send signals that behind the language there is a life commandment. After many sessions, we finally got to the deep inner belief system. During one session, I asked, who are you, deep inside there anyway? I've worked with you for many months and I don't know who you are. Who are you, deep behind your religious language? She flushed, became angry, and began to cry. In the midst of her tears, she said softly, I'm a nobody. 
She'd used religion to hide from the fact that deep inside there was a lie. And that she had an action, she covered over the, she papered over the lie with the facade of religiousness. But deep down inside there was a lie that needed to be cut out and operated on. And oh my goodness, does the gospel have resources to deal with shame? Here's the thing is that in the space of shame, what does God say? He says, You are worthy. He says, you're worthy, one, because I created you. God created humanity out of the overflow of his love. He didn't create you as an accident. He didn't create you as a, as a um, just something to do. No, he overflowed his love and formed you. You are worthy because you are made by God. But you are not only that, you are doubly worthy because in the space of shame, in the space of our mess, God stepped in and said, while we were still messed up, he died for us. He steps in and says, when we were dead in our transgressions and sins in which we used to live, God raised us up with Christ, for it is by gift that you are saved. Not by what you have done, not by how much you've pulled your life together, but by the gift of God. It says you are worthy because you are his, and you are doubly worthy. Because you weren't just bought by him, you were made by him, and in this space, he says, I chose you. Here's the thing. Could you dare to believe? Oh my, could you dare to believe that you were loved before you were lost? Could you dare to believe that God's love never wavered? That it was precisely your lovedness that would bring God to take such reckless measures as Christmas, as coming to earth, as Easter, as taking an agonizing death for you. But the problem, I think, is that we've so long covered over dealing with this. How many times have our self-talk been, I'm not good enough? That's the point at which we need to apply the gospel. That's the point at which you need to say, no, I am not that. I am not what my mind has been telling me. I am not what other people have said about me. I'm applying in the deepest parts of my heart. I am worthy because in Jesus, with Jesus, to Jesus, I am enough. And when we get to this point where we see the cross, that Jesus would go to that depths for you, the gospel says that because of Jesus, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing you do or will do or have done, no height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God. You have such a security in the fact that your worth will not change. Your worth will not change. Can you say that to yourself? Can you practice saying that to yourself? Because when we get to that point, we find I am enough. In Jesus, with Jesus, to Jesus, I am enough. I am worthy of his love and belonging, and that is not based on what I do. Think about it. How much time do we waste trying to feel good about ourselves, trying to pull our lives to go, if I just work hard enough, then I'll be enough. If I just... And beautiful enough. If I just pull myself together, if I'm perfect enough, people will think I'm enough. If people could just like me enough. No, but if I start with this place that I am enough in Jesus, that he has remade me, I am a new creation, I am not who I used to be, I have put off the old self with its deceitful desires, and I've been made new in the attitude of my mind, it brings us to a place where actually we can say, I am enough. And I'm, an, I'm freed from 
trying to hide from my mess. In fact, I can realize that my flaws are actually the point of grace because then where transformation happens. My brokenness isn't what invalidates me. It's actually what makes me beautiful because it's the moment where I can realize God's been at work. It brings us to a place of vulnerability. Prayer is so often limited by the fact that I have to put up this facade to think I'm good enough. Prayer is actually going, I have no idea what I'm doing, God. Help me. Prayer is saying, I can't control this. I need, when I catch up with young people and they're telling me issues, I have no idea what to say. The moments that I pretend I know what to say are the moments that I have nothing to say. But yet it's our vulnerable, if we could get to a place of vulnerability, going you're vulnerable before God, God help me, and vulnerable before others to actually let others in, to realize that our mess is powerful because it's part of our testimony. That brings us to a place of wholeheartedness. It means that we are actually freed from our shallowness. You know, vulnerability is the key to transformation. Because it's the place where we actually bring something that it's going to cost. I don't know if it's going to work, but it's going to, to, to take that vulnerable step. And maybe it will be, be, be successful, maybe it won't, but that's faith. If I could take a step towards vulnerability, that's wholeheartedness. And ultimately, wholeheartedness leads us to courage. When I start with not enough, that I am not enough, my whole trajectory is lack. When I start with I am enough, to Jesus, in Jesus, with Jesus, I am enough, I am set forth on a trajectory that I can say no. I can choose to let go of things. I can choose to let go of the lies that I'm believing because to God, I am enough. It doesn't matter how much I work for it, I'm still enough. It doesn't matter how much of a mess I am, I'm still enough. In Jesus, with Jesus, to Jesus, I am enough. And that frees us and it gives us new life and it gives us courage to go and make a difference. It frees us to be able to say, I'm a mess, but I'm a beautiful mess because I am his masterpiece. And that's enough. Let's pray. Father, we need you. I'm sorry, God, for the times that I've pretended to have it all together. I'm sorry, God, for the times that I pretended to seem like my life is better than it is. I'm sorry, God, for the times that I've used religion to hide from dealing with those deep parts of shame. I'm sorry, God, that I've covered over those issues rather than letting you solve them and deal with them. Would you bring me to a place of, of freedom, God? Would you bring us to a place of vulnerability? We need you. Help us to see that in Jesus, we are enough. We trust you. Amen.